Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. In a world on the brink of disruption, two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me the Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren. Well, hi there and welcome to Show Me the Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Ulf Lonegren. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the blockchain space help deliver you with value. And on this episode, we're joined by Paul Puey, CEO and co-founder of Edge, which is a self-custody crypto exchange and security platform. Paul's wide-ranging career path took him on a journey from lead engineering position with NVIDIA to owner of non-technical small businesses. Paul's experience as first an architect and then a user of tech allowed him to quickly grasp the concept of Bitcoin in 2013, and he has been building in the space ever since. Paul, welcome to Show Me the Crypto. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thanks for that introduction. It's a glowing piece of my past and history. Hopefully I can live up to it over the course of this uh, interview and then afterwards. So oh, thanks a bunch. I'm sure you will. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. And this is something that Alf and I noticed when we were doing research is that you are somebody who is an early adopter. So going back, uh, whether it was developing custom web content management systems before people knew what a CMS was, or being an advocate of keto before it was cool, and then even discovering Bitcoin 2013, why do you think you're a person who catches on to trends so quickly? Um, not sure if I, the, uh, if it's so much me catching on to trends. I think the trends, there's a, there's a commonality in the trends that I catch on to. <clears throat> and Bitcoin fits into that. And it's really a kind of a middle finger to the established thought process. Hmm. You know, it's like, what do you think the world is? How do you think the world normally operates? It's probably not that way. And I really like finding the life hacks. Like the things that are like, hey, this isn't what we know. This isn't what we're taught for the past fifty hundred years. But maybe what we've been learning these past fifty hundred years isn't actually right, and it's motivated by something else, probably money. <clears throat> and that's the trend that I've found myself going down the path of. Um, maybe not so much in the content management system. That was me just building <laughs> a site for our friends to go and hang out on the early internet web one days. <clears throat> but definitely the the attachment to to keto, which at the time wasn't really seen as like, what the hell is this? How in the world could this be possibly be healthy? Now it's like all over the place. And the realization that the sugar industry, you know, in the grain industry and the anti-fat um, propaganda that we saw pretty much all my life <clears throat> has been an entire lie. That's the path. That's the trend that I've, I've kind of followed. And Bitcoin's just following suit in that. Oh, here's the way money should work. Governments are supposed to print it. They're supposed to back it. You're supposed to hold money in a bank. Oh, maybe that was all a lie too. You know? And so that's, that's really the trend. So I don't know if it's really being a, you know, a futurist and early adopter to these keen ideas, or just always looking for ways to see you know, or to question the, the, the narrative. I think that's probably the the, the trend is question the narrative. Don't necessarily always fight against it. You have to question it and then do your own research and, and come to your own conclusions. And those few pieces of my life came to the conclusion that, 
yeah, I think there is a different way that the world can and should operate. Speaking to your history, as far as in you know your life from a career standpoint, it's interesting that you worked for uh, in tech for a decade and then got out of tech and went into entrepreneurship and uh, ran non-technical businesses for another decade before you know moving into uh, Bitcoin and crypto. How has that whole sort of experience and timeline brought you to where you are today in the world of crypto and, and taking everything you've learned and, and kind of putting it into your business with Edge? Yeah, I'd say that my, my life outside of tech was actually one of the more difficult, but also most valuable life experiences. Um, to give you full kind of insight into the why, I, I kind of broke down, like physically, health-wise, broke down working in tech. I am, admittedly, you could probably you know, learn this from both my wife and the people I work with, a bit of a workaholic. When I get into something, I go 150% on it. Whether it was, you know, me working in Silicon Valley at NVIDIA and I'd pull late nights, sleep on the couch in meeting rooms because I just loved what the hell I was doing to building that little website, which built the first CMS that I'd ever heard of because I wanted to build a website for our friends to get together and post photos and say what we're doing and create events, kind of like a mini Facebook at the time. I would do that until the sun came down and the sun rose and I wouldn't even realize how much time passed by. Um, bit of a workaholic, but that of course, isn't healthy for you. You know, I, I physically broke down, got repetitive strain in the wrists and couldn't use a computer. Um, and that was, that brought the end of my engineering world. Like, like how could I possibly be an engineer? How could I be a developer in Silicon Valley when I could barely touch a keyboard, <clears throat> but it also opened my eyes to what was not working in the health and, and kind of health and wellness space. I went to pretty much every kind of doctor known to man to help with the problem and none of them worked and they would give me everything from like just random shots and pads and you know pills to take nothing worked what did work is the kind of thing that they never recommended chiropractic which recommended physical therapy strengthening exercise and stretching the stuff that i was never told to do instead it's you know oh well you know get ergonomic but then you know just keep working right take these shots these uh, uh anti-inflammatories but then just keep working and so the whole Western medicine world and traditional medicine and doctors didn't do a damn thing. And it, it drove me to basically losing a career for the next decade, <clears throat> during which I found other methods, which definitively helped. Right. And that opened my eyes to, gosh, all these experts, maybe they don't, they don't really know what they're talking about, at least in some of the angles that they're supposed to be able to help with. That was the first moment of truth. Right. And at that point, I had entered into kind of more of the small business, first worked in like a bar or restaurant. Then I started working in, um, in a climbing gym. I, I'm, I was a big avid climber. I don't have much time to climb anymore. Having you know, a startup in, in the cryptocurrency world, I, I still try to get into the gym once in a while and, and do a little bit of climbing. <clears throat> but when you're also surrounded by that group of people, a bunch of granola outdoorsy people, they're also about like F the system and F what you know, you'd normally hear as far as how I should be taking care of myself. You get a bunch of yogis who will shun a lot of uh, traditional meds as well. It's like, you know, there's better ways for you to fix your body, right? Than what you would normally get. And so I really got surrounded by that mentality and I saw how it worked, the people that I was surrounded with and how they had a much better life balance on, on a health health-wise, mental-wise. Um, and I was inspired by that. 
And it really wasn't, and I never had the interest of going back into tech. I honestly didn't. I got paid a whole lot less, but it was a much more fun, humble, and enjoyable living. And it wasn't until I discovered Bitcoin, which although it's in tech, it fully aligned with this vision of, gosh, what is you know against the narrative? What's, what's a new thing that's contrary to what everyone is saying and about how the world should work? Discovered that, and as I'd mentioned in a few other interviews, I became kind of the worst employee at the job at the time, because that's all I could study and listen to. And a lot of people say, oh, I'm, I'm pretty like OG original, but I can't claim myself as that because by the time I discovered Bitcoin, there already were blogs and podcasts to learn from. There weren't many. Um, for a lot of people that are a bit newer, they'd be surprised to hear that when I first got into Bitcoin, there was one podcast. Wow. <laughs> and it aired twice a week. I think it was a 40, 40 minute long podcast aired twice a week. And I would wait <laughs> till the next episode. I'm like, all right, it's Wednesday. I get to listen to the next episode of let's talk Bitcoin, you know? Nice. And I would just listen to it on the way to work and I get to work and it's not over yet. And I just sit in the, in the, in the parking spot, <laughs> just like listening and listening, listening, learning more about Bitcoin, you know, and then be over. I'm like, gosh, you're not going to wait till Sunday for the next podcast. Whereas now there's obviously a ton of different podcasts, but the industry has grown too. So you need more podcasts to cover all the different swaths of what cryptocurrency is now. <clears throat> so it makes sense. Industry grows, you need more content to cover all the different facets of it. Um, but that kind of is a description of what brought me full circle, like, you know, engineering and that life and not understanding, you know, health really is what broke me down, brought me into the small business space, found ways to kind of recoup and, and heal that were contrary to the rhetoric and then I found this other technology, which is very contrary to the rhetoric and it fully aligned. I'm all full on board and admittedly probably not as healthy as I was before. Body has broken down a bit being the workaholic that I used to be. I haven't learned a few lessons from the past, so I know how to control it. But at the same time, you know, now I just feel like I have a lifelong mission you know, to, to drive this technology forward to the masses, even if it, it it's not for my best interest, but I want to be part of the history books, which I think a lot of us do. <clears throat> Given that background, you just explained, it makes sense that, you know, when you discovered Bitcoin in 2013, that it clicked right away and it aligned with with all of these things that you had noticed in your previous in your previous jobs. But it is still pretty crazy to think you went from discovering Bitcoin in 2013 to launching Edge just one year later. So kind of what did that process look like? You just talked about you were immersing yourself in education. But at what point did you have the conviction that you wanted to launch Edge? Oh gosh. Um, there was a moment, rewind the meetup scene. I have a lot to thank for the entire meetup scene, meetup.com. Thank you very much. I found a lot of my climbing buddies from that, from that website. And then I found a lot of people that I know in the cryptocurrency space from that website. And I actually found all of the co-founders of this company through events in the meetup scene. <clears throat> and so I got involved with uh, the San Diego meetup, the Bitcoin meetup, which had existed before I had even found out about Bitcoin. Um, but I got involved with that meetup and I remember going to some events at some pizzerias and there'd be like literally three people, two to three people. If six people showed up, it was an awesome event. Um, uh, and um, by I think October, it was either September, October of 2013, I, I, be, I had already become an organizer, helped organize some of these events. I found venues, hopefully convinced them to take Bitcoin. <clears throat> and I wanted to give a little bit of how-to on how to use Bitcoin and how to secure it. At the time, I was using an old open source wallet, which most people here have not even heard of, called Armory. Mm -hmm. 
It was one of the more popular ones at the time. It was a desktop. Well, it wasn't multi-sig as multi-sig didn't exist at the time, <clears throat> but it was a split key, you know, um, air-gapped type of uh, remote desktop, not like a remote desktop, but a desktop that you could have offline to sign transactions. <clears throat> and I was giving this demo of how to use it to about 12 people. It's one of our biggest meetups at the time. Oh my God, 12 <laughs> people showed up. <clears throat> I was giving this demo and, you know, I pride myself to being a decently good educator when I understand a topic. But I was giving this demo in about... 10 minutes into it, I can see that the audience of people listening to this demo and instructional thing just had glossed over faces like, <laughs> oh, is that what we're supposed to do to secure and send our Bitcoin? And I was like, oh, I wanted to stop the presentation right there. I go, guys, I'm so super sorry about this. I will build something better. <laughs> right? I wanted to stop at that moment. I said, you know, I'll just finish this presentation. I finished it, answered some questions, like people understood it. They understood what they had to do. They were just incredibly intimidated by it. <clears throat> that was one of the sparks. And I actually met one of our co-founders at that meetup, you know, um, him, him and his girlfriend were there at the time. And we've been great friends ever since. <clears throat> and he helped find some of the other co-founders and was a big part of the early days of Edge at the time when we were called Airbits. <clears throat> so that was kind of the spark. And it was through the meetup scene that I started kind of bouncing ideas off people of, hey, what are ways to build, you know, what we would call the, the better wallet, the, the easier one to manage keys. And really the key management was what really threw me off. And what threw off a lot of the people at that demo was like, like how do you deal with taking these keys and splitting it up and writing it down? <clears throat> Just really invasive and, and unfriendly, unforgiving. Um, and that's been the core focus and the foundation of what we built at Edge. Uh, that was in, in essence, hopefully the answer to your question, that was that moment that I said, I want to build something. And through the next few meetup events where I got to talk to some people there who ended up being some of the co-founders and early investors in the project <clears throat> is where we kind of came up with the architecture and the design. And then by I think January of 2014, the, the, the main co-founders and team were, were fully together and we just started cranking. <clears throat> Following on that, um, that idea of of the meetups and the conferences and stuff like that. I'm just curious because we were talking before we hit record about going to different conferences. It was a bit of a busy June for you. Um, over the years, have you gone to some of the the Bitcoin like on an annual basis? And if so, what has that been like the evolution? I mean, Alf and I went for the first time to Bitcoin in Miami in April, and I think there was 30,000 plus people. But I can only imagine from you, you know, hosting these these meetups at an early time when there's like three, five people uh, that the conference scene probably has evolved quite a bit. Oh, for sure. My first conference was, I think, in October in no, October, November in Las Vegas of 2013. That was, I think, one of the third, I think it was like the third or fourth conferences in the world. <clears throat> and that one had maybe shy of a thousand people and it felt huge. <clears throat> um, I remember going to Bitcoin Magazine. The booth for Bitcoin Magazine was a white folding table, six <laughs> feet wide. <clears throat> That's all it was, had absolutely no, no banner behind it, had nothing on the table, even a tablecloth. Um, and this lanky kid comes with holding a box a bitcoin magazine right plunks it down on the table and is like would you like a magazine right um I'm like sure would you like a magazine sure like, hey i'm paul what's your name vitalik <laughs> i thought you were gonna say vitalik oh my god yeah exactly <laughs> he pretty much 
was a core piece of a, a Bitcoin magazine. So yeah, I got a Bitcoin magazine from Vitalik, who at the time was barely a name. He was a great writer for the magazine, but obviously this is way before Ethereum had seen even light of day or even a white paper. And so, yeah, a thousand person conference was what we considered to be on the large side. And typically speaking, a lot of conferences, because we were right going right into the bear market. Like mm. Edge Airbits had what, it, what I call terrible timing with respect to the Bitcoin cycles. Founded the company right at the peak of the bull market, but then the market just dove and you know launched the app right in the bear market when a lot of people didn't give a damn and you know Bitcoin was dead. It was one of its obituary, obituary years. Um, but yeah, we we went to the conferences that had sixty to hundred people. That was pretty common during the bear market. And in twenty seventeen, we hit. 3,000 people, which seemed unheard of. Um, in 2017, I went to a non-Bitcoin conference called Slush. Hmm. And that's a, it's a conference in Helsinki for general startups and investors. Like Google shows up, Andreessen Horowitz shows up, um, you know, a lot of big companies, P, uh, PwC, and then a ton of startups <clears throat> come to this thing. And it's a 15,000-person conference. And I remember going to this going, wow, this is huge, but, oh, but it's not a crypto conference. That's why it's so big. <clears throat> and thinking, wow, it's amazing if crypto ever got to this size. And at that time, I think the biggest conference in 2017 was, yeah, about 3,000. Although consensus in 2018 hit eight, around mm -hmm. seven, 8,000 people. So we're like, oh my God, wow, this is, this is massive. <clears throat> um, and of course, being someone that went to a hundred person conference, it became to the point where like, gosh, who are all these people? where they come from? What brought their interest? <clears throat> but that's fair. You know, you start learning it from this person, that person, and it is a compelling technology and it's surviving over the, those years makes people realize it's not going away. And when you start getting that level of conviction, people come out to play and that's, that's totally fair. <clears throat> but admittedly, <clears throat> apologize, I'm still recovering from a bit of a cold. Oh, no worries. But um, there are, still some conferences that are relatively small, one to 200 people. And admittedly, I highly recommend people try to go to some of those. <clears throat> a lot of people avoid, oh, that's a small conference. Hardly anyone's going to be over there. But you go to those because the people that attend, you have an opportunity to, to interact with pretty much everyone. Yeah. That's what I, I kind of miss. Yeah. Like I would go to some of these larger conferences. And I'll know about 100 people attending a 15,000 person conference. That's not a lot of people. But I might not see any of them. Yeah. <clears throat> Might not see a single one of them unless I intentionally say, hey, let's meet up this exact time and this exact place if you even are available. Um, I went, I didn't go to Bitcoin 2022 in April. <clears throat> I just went to the, I went to the festival after party and that's it. Nice. <laughs> but I did go to blockchain 2022, which is immediately after it. It's held by uh, Michael Turpin of Transform Group or PR agency. They've been around since early days, 2012. <clears throat> um, and it's a much more you know, it's a much more intimate conference. Brock Pierce spoke at it. Um, Jeremy Gardner, who invented Augur, which is the first ICO on Ethereum back in 2015, 16, <clears throat> they attended and spoke at it. And you see them not just on stage, but you see them in the hallway, you see them, you know, in the break room, and you really get an opportunity to interact with the people there. And so I, I wish the best for those kind of events as well. We need the gigantic ones that bring in pretty much everybody and the huge company uh, companies and the, um, the big name speakers. And then we need some of these smaller intimate ones that which really give people an opportunity to meet the people more face-to-face -face versus going to like a concert where you're never going to get backstage, kind of, you know? So that's kind of the transition that I've seen in the scene um, is that you're always backstage in the old, old conferences. 
And now it's like going to this massive concert and, you know, only a few people get to interact with, with others. And it's hard to serendipitously run into the people you want to talk to, Mm -hmm. but it's a necessary part of growth. Yeah. I love hearing that because even, I mean, that's going to strike a chord with Wade and I, because, you know, going to Bitcoin 2022, I mean, that was one of our criticisms because for us running a podcast, I mean, we were hoping to meet and have a chance to speak with some of the the speakers and the people who you're going to see, but it's such a big conference. I mean, they have their bit on stage and then they're gone. Like you don't, you don't really see them. So uh, yeah, we got to get out to some of those uh, smaller ones and check them out to have that more intimate experience. I think that we'd be looking for and probably a lot of other people too. No, exactly. Do definitely check them out. I went to a smaller one in Miami called Miami Crypto Experience. Uh, They partnered with Michael Turpin and the Transform Group Layer 1 events to host um, the uh, Blockchain 2022 event, which only had like maybe 100, 200 people at most, but still some pretty big name speakers. And so those are great ones to go to and be able to have more one-on-one time with people. Like I'm not sure if you know the no Tone Tone Bays. He's got like, I think like Mm -hmm. 300K uh, Twitter followers, a pretty popular YouTube channel. He was there and I got to sit down on a you know, table of four with him and chat for like half an hour. And I've, fortunately, I've, got, I've, I've known him since early days in like 2014 before he became a, a big YouTube celebrity in the crypto space and even spent the night over at his place in New York several times. I needed a place to crash for a conference in the bear markets. <clears throat> and so we're you know, we good, good acquaintance slash friends in the space. But yeah, those some smaller conferences are worth looking looking into if you want to be able to have more face to face with uh, the people that attend and some of the speakers. Nice. Um, so, getting back to Edge Wallet and starting Edge, which at the time Airbits you, you mentioned, um, you know, privacy in the world of crypto. Back in the day, in particular, if we're talking about Bitcoin, you know, privacy was really one of the major. I don't know, selling points, if you will, around what Bitcoin did uh, or provided. And maybe today that narrative has shifted a little bit. But for Edge, privacy seems to be uh, at your core. Now, has that always been the case? Did it start that way? And has it always been, um, you know, at the forefront? Or has that kind of changed at all with the landscape of crypto itself changing with all these other tokens, protocols and privacy, you know, there's different, there's different levels of privacy across different, uh, crypto projects now. Yeah. I'd say privacy has from day one been at the forefront of what we build at edge at the time it was Airbits, And you can see it in the, uh, ethos of the co-founders, especially my co-founder, William Swanson. He's the kind of guy that is so keen on privacy and control that he builds the operating system that he puts on his own Android phone. Wow. He doesn't doesn't trust the OS OS that came with the phone. So he'll download the OS, the open source OS, build it and put it on his phone. Now he doesn't have like the Google play store and whatnot. You know, he's about like a lot of the control and knowing what's happening on the phone, knowing that he hasn't, you know, installed some, you know, spyware, um, of which, you know, a lot of standard apps are kind of spyware already as they are. <clears throat> he has that level of, uh, desire for control and privacy. Um, I balance it out where I want privacy though, but I want it where people don't go through any extra effort to get it. 
So admittedly, a lot of the tools I use do compromise my privacy. <clears throat> I'm the kind of person where um, Signal, when I started using it back in 2015-ish, was horrible. It crashed all the time. The UX sucked. I couldn't do emojis, blah, blah, blah. It just, so I just didn't use it. It just sat on my phone, never used it. <clears throat> but I checked on it every year. And I think two to three years ago, it suddenly clicked that, wow, this is actually better than WhatsApp. You know? And I switched everyone I knew to it. I said, hey, if you're going to chat with me, Signal, Signal, Signal. Telegram, kind of garbage in a few different ways. Like By default, I'm Signal unless you really don't have it and don't want to use it and whatnot. Um, and that's what I'm looking for is is building products where, you know, my friends who don't care about privacy and they use Signal, they don't even have to care that it's private. They're not going through any extra hoops to get privacy. <clears throat> now, admittedly, back when we had first launched Airbits, we got compared to other wallets with respect to privacy. We scored pretty well, actually, you know, like top three um, on, on a few different fronts, which were fairly subtle. But we had these other wallets that their whole pitch was privacy, but you had to jump through hoops. Um, you had to push this button to mix your funds. Right, you had to push this button to be able to change an address. You push this to this, and it was there was always like this extra work. And while we could do that in edge, we always what we would like to do is keep an eye on technology that can hide the privacy steps, the complexity steps of getting privacy, <clears throat> and just give it to someone who doesn't even care. Because there's one fundamental thing about privacy is for those of us that care, like say the three of us care a lot about privacy, we're not going to get a lot of privacy if only the three of us are using the privacy preserving tools. <clears throat> But if we get everyone we know and everyone that they know and everyone that they know to be using privacy preserving tools like Signal and like Edge, Airbits, even if it's only the three of us that care about it, we get a much higher level of privacy. Ulf, do you realize our audience has been either watching or listening to this episode for 20 minutes? 20 minutes? No, they should probably subscribe. Yeah, they should subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you comment and turn on notifications. And if you're listening to this podcast, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok. So go check out the episode description. You can find all that information below. And we have an update on the NFT, don't we? That's right. We didn't previously mention this, but this NFT for OG supporter is a one of one. There will only be one of this kind ever minted. And we have a few surprises for the person who purchases it. The link is in the episode description. And back to the episode. And in terms of, of growth, I mean, it's been significant going from 2014 to now over 1.7 million accounts, I believe, something like that. Uh, so, so what's that journey been like? I mean, that, that whole explaining to the consumers, the importance of edge and everything like that. And then have you seen it being kind of more recently exponential growth? These things tend to have that hockey stick growth, growth curve. Is that what you've been seeing? We definitely see the growth map, the price of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. I say it, when the prices go up, people hear about it, the news talks about it. People want to get into the apps, they download edge. And so it pretty much maps that. And admittedly, growth was really tough the first few years as Airbits. You know, we launched right into the bear market of 2015. That was probably the worst bear market in the history of Bitcoin. Hmm. It was the, the longest, just drawn out, terrible bread news happened. Mt. Gox crashed. Um, uh, what's his name? Charlie Shrem was arrested. There's just so much bad news at the time. <clears throat> and it lasted quite a while. And I'm surprised we even survived it. Um, and so growth was relatively stagnant during our era as, as Airbus. Like we grew, we had some, we had some sticks here and there. You know? Sometimes those coincided with really issues in other apps 
that we were able to overcome mm. where people say, oh, this app's not working. They couldn't handle the volume. Like, like Bitcoin volume would spike and servers and nodes would go down. And some of those other apps couldn't handle that. Whereas ours was able to, at least able to do it better. <clears throat> and so those are some of the, the st hockey sticks that we got, but they were brief. And it wasn't until really we did the pivot to edge that we saw more meaningful growth. Now edge also launched into the bear market of 2018, hmm. right? 2017 was the big, big hockey stick. And we kind of missed a lot of that growth because we were building in 2017, 2017 was our building year is when we were building edge and we couldn't have timed it any worse. If we built edge in 2016, launched in 2017, would awesome <clears throat> would have killed it. But, uh, yeah, we did that pivot a little bit on the later side, launched in 2018, the market was already downturning. But even so, we saw about three to four X year over year growth during the bear market years. Mm. 2018 to 2019 was three to four X growth, 19 to 23 to four X, 2021 was three to four X. Mm. And so consistent growth, 2022, I don't think any company is growing from 2021 to 2022, the way they did 2020 to 2021. Like that, it's a super hard, every company. Um, in crypto always has to take a dip in the uh, uh, bull to bear. Now, once you're in a bear year, there's a good chance you can grow bear, bear year to bear year. All right. As long as you can execute, you can do that. <clears throat> but bull, bull market year to bear market year is pretty tough. But yeah, our growth didn't really more significantly start <clears throat> until our pivot to edge in 2018. And so that was a worthwhile pivot. Um, the product seems like it's, it's hit its stride, uh, but definitely we had some pretty rough years in the, the early days. Those, those weren't fun bear market years in 2015, 16, 17. You might be surprised to hear that uh, we've interviewed a lot of different founders of different projects, and a lot of them had started building or launched their product right into the bear market. Now, most of the ones we've talked to is uh, during the 2018 bear market. And the interesting part about that is I find those are the ones that seem to like, at least the ones we've talked to, I guess maybe that's because they're the ones who made it through, but the mm -hmm. ones who made it through the bear market, having launched their product, you know, during that time end up maybe, maybe coming out stronger. I don't know, but do you think there's any truth to that? I mean, you, you kind of, um, presented it as purely like downside in both cases, yeah, yeah. but do you think there's any upside to your timing? I think the upside is that you're not launching, you're not seeing a notable downward trend in your product right off the first two years. Right. So if you launch in 2017, for example, you're just all upside. You have a great first year and your second year is terrible. <clears throat> right. So you don't have this growth into the, the first few years, which looks terrible for you to just launch high and then just crash right, right off the bat. So there might be something to be said about that, especially if you, you overspend in that first year because you got you know, you've barely got any just your your early seed funding and you're seeing all this money come in and you're overspending and you're thinking that that's just going to continue and you go right into year two you don't know what you're doing and suddenly everything just kind of bottoms out from underneath you <clears throat> versus going through some of the harder years being a bit more frugal um, growing a bit more uh, steady you know in pace um, and then by the time the the bear market comes around, you've, you kind of know how to manage, <laughs> you know, how to kind of manage the harder time. So there could be some truth to that, you know, is that, you know, there's, there's an analogy to that. My dad used to grow mango trees and he said, the best ones are the ones that grow in the harshest soil mm. and survive because they actually learn how to sow deeper roots. Right. 
right? They have to sow much, much deeper roots to get to the water that's deeper. And when there's a, a tornado and a hurricane, they don't just get blown over. The ones that just kind of live in the lap of luxury, you know, with, with all the water and moist, great fertile soil at the top, they don't sow deep roots. They just get toppled over in the hurricane. So there's a similar analogy. There could be some truth to that. Um, but admittedly, when you're in it, it sure isn't fun. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And I think there is a lot of truth to that. Um, so if there is somebody listening to or watching this episode, they're probably already bought in because if, if they're watching during this time, you know, good on them kind of thing. But maybe they're not. Maybe they went through the bull run 2021. It was the first time they ever bought crypto or who knows, NFTs, anything like that. And now they're seeing this huge downward trend. What is your advice to those people of what to expect in the next little while, but also just uh, to get them through this more difficult time? Everything I could say might be deemed financial advice. <laughs> Fair know, enough. Um, it's okay, because so, this is not financial <laughs> advice. All right, it's not financial <laughs> advice. Uh, buy the dip. Let's take... Say, let, let's just take finances out of it. I mean, just yeah, in yeah. general, maybe it's somebody who wants to get a career or have a career in, in Web3 or something like that. I mean, your thoughts on on why paying attention to the industry at a time when maybe people are are joking about it, laughing about it, think it's it doesn't have a real future. So if you want a, uh, a job in the industry, admittedly, given as many people have seen a lot of the layoffs in the space, it's going to be harder. Right, there's no question about it. It's, it's going to be harder to get um, a job in the space, but there definitely are jobs to be had. There are some companies that are still hiring. Um, <clears throat> I think the constant across bull and bear marks, this is probably not answering your question, but the one constant about the crypto industry, which I've always loved and I've always tried to tell people that are trying to get a, a job in, especially the developers um, and especially the juniors. Most mid-level senior developers don't have a problem getting a position. A lot of the juniors and you know, auto college, are the, they're the ones that are that typically struggle. They always come across the job post, which is, you know, needs minimum three to five years of experience. They're like, well, where the hell does someone like me ever get started? <clears throat> the beauty of the crypto space, the unique beauty of the crypto space, which I've never seen prior, is that there's many for-profit companies or for-profit projects <clears throat> that are open source. And that's unique because you could literally be using a product that you like and love, and it's open source. How many times prior to crypto could you go download an app in the app store, uh, download an, uh, an app for your desktop, or use a website that is a product that you enjoy using, and it's open source? It's super rare, super duper rare. Now it's actually pretty prevalent. Edge is one, one example of that. So as I think like Trust Wallet and a good handful of other solutions, BRD back when they existed <clears throat> before they got bought out, all open source project, which means you as a developer can use something. And if you don't like something about it, you literally can change it and submit a PR. Hmm. There is no more powerful piece of your resume than to have a contribution to an open source project that's out in the wild in production with millions of accounts and users. That is a bullet point that if someone submitted a resume to us and say that they've even contributed a simple PR that they can put a link to and I can look at it and see their code for even just one snippet. <clears throat> and know that this other reputable project accepted it into their, into their own, um, that means that your code was good enough for them to accept, that's huge. And that's an open door that the tech industry just hasn't had ever. Um, and that's gonna be available there, bull or bear market. 
But for the people that are trying to get in the bear market and they need to stand out and differentiate, that is a good way to differentiate when it is harder to get a job. So use that one, that one unique offering that crypto has, as opposed to all the industries in and before cryptocurrency, all those industries before, use that to your advantage, especially now when you need to kind of stand out from the crowd. It's a great way to stand out. <clears throat> I love that advice. I think that's great. Um, so with Edge being around for as long as it has now, uh, eight years or so, now Airbits before that and then Edge, what are some of the best moments along the way? We've already touched on maybe some of the the lower moments, but if you've got some stories around, uh, you know, the best and or the worst moments uh, during the journey to get to where Edge is today, we'd love to hear them. See there, it's it's been quite a ride. The best moments, um, and this maybe is le less to do about Airbit's Edge, but really about our industry as a whole. And some of the experiences of my co-founders, I remember 2015, uh, we went to, we launched Airbits, the, and, uh, the, at the time, not the full wallet, but in April of 2014, we launched, because we were focused on payments and merchant adoption. We had a merchant directory that we launched first. Many people don't know this. The first iteration of Airbits was just an app, kind of like a Yelp app, but without the voting that just sh showed you a map of where you could spend Bitcoin. And you won't believe how many people still ask us like, Hey, when are you going to bring back the, back the Airbits merchant directory? <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, there used to be 50 merchants here in San Diego and there's maybe like two now. And so, you know, it is people don't want to spend their Bitcoin. That's fair. <clears throat> um, but, uh, one of the pride and joy moments was when two of my co-founders at a Toronto conference, the Toronto Bitcoin Expo in April of 2014 joined up with Amir Taki, which at the time was a big name in Bitcoin. He had developed a wallet called Dark Wallet. It was a very, very privacy preserving. He was one of those like high level of privacy. You got to jump through hoops, you know, but right. we still like the mission of what they were doing. Um, my co-founder, William, actually worked closely with the, the developer and the founder of, of Dark Wallet on their code base, which we partially used in Airbits. So we actually used the code base of this Dark Wallet um, called LibBitcoin, which is still in development today. Um, because it had some of these privacy features. We didn't end up using them because once again, it would require extra steps for the user, but we used it because we thought we could eventually. But they they joined together, two of our co-founders and uh, two of the people from Dark Wallet entered a hackathon um, at that conference and actually took first place. Wow. And that hackathon was building a decentralized, private, anonymous um, marketplace, which used Bitcoin multisig and arbitrators to be able to trade goods online without a central company. And while that was a great moment for us, like, oh, we got on stage, we won, you know, won the hackathon and whatnot. The bigger pride was the fact that that project got picked up and became a major company in the space. They've since folded, but they were around for probably like five years and that was Open Bazaar. Hmm. Um, and Open Bazaar actually won um, like a consensus award in I think 2016 or 2017 as you know, I think three different awards at that conference were like best Bitcoin project, you know, most exciting blah, blah, blah project when they felt like two or three awards. And while we weren't a part of that, we feel like, wow, we were able to help launch that. <clears throat> you know, we, we contributed to that, that effort. And I wish they were still around there. I got to know Brian Hoffman, who was the, you know, the CEO of what became OB one, the, the for-profit company that was building open bizarre, the open source project, they were funded by entries in Horowitz and some major, major backers. And so that was one of the highlights. I remember that and it put a lot of like pride and joy in the mission of what we were doing, the people we were working with, 
And it showed that the industry cared about building something that was autonomous and fairly and, and very privacy preserving. So that was a fond memory for sure. Um, I, I can't forget that moment. Um, and others were definitely much more subtle, but we've, we've had some major like, spikes on along the roadmap and along the lines of privacy, which is a kind of our ori original topics. We noticed that a significant spike in the early days of edge, like middle of 2018, right after we, we had, uh, <clears throat> uh, launched edge into production when we became the first multi-asset app to incorporate Monero. Mm -hmm. Um, and we saw that there were a lot of fans of Monero, but using it was a horrible experience. And most of it were just Monero only wallets that, you know, there was no other choice. So therefore they didn't really have to build a great UX. You know, that process of using it was, was a bit heinous and we were the first to actually make it usable and also make it tradable. People could buy and sell Monero from within our application through our exchange partners um, with no personal information, no, no account signups. <clears throat> and that sh saw a huge hockey stick um, in growth for like the next two or three months for us. And we got a lot of attention within the industry for once again, that, that privacy preserving piece. Um, so that was a good pride and joy moment for us. It was like, ah, this is great because we're aligning with our mission, aligning with the vision and being rewarded for it at the same time. Um, and I'm sure there's more moments like that that I like, can't recall amidst uh, all of the years and months. Um, but those are two notable highlights uh, that I'll, I'll take with me to this day. The overarching memory, at least for me personally, that I've enjoyed has been the people that we've gotten to work with. The people I've gotten to meet and the people I've gotten to work with in the process of building the company. That's the thing that keeps me you know, uh, getting up in the mornings and coming to work and enjoying what I do. I think we've been fortunate as a company to have brought on you know, not just good, good people, but good people that you kind of want to work with. You know, they're not just the kind of people that crank, but you stick them in the closet and you know, don't, inter don't, don't interact with me. I've worked with some of those people, especially like in NVIDIA, you know, I had people that are like, well, that guy's a genius. Put him over there. You know? <laughs> I don't want to talk to him. You know, I just know he puts out great shit, but I don't want to talk to him. Um, whereas uh, I've been able to be fortunate enough to surround myself with people I really enjoy being with and that put together and put forth good work. So. Nice. That's the overarching experience. There's been a lot of interesting things happening in the space over the last couple of months uh, with Terra Luna, with Celsius. Yeah. What do you, what do you make of of all of all of kind of the the recent things that have been happening? And I guess very recently with with BlockFi as well. Yeah, um, it all fits under the rhetoric that we've been saying for a long time. Um, Terra Luna a little bit less so, but the beauty of, I hate to say this, these two words don't even go together. The beauty of the Terra Luna issue is that everything that could have happened to Terra and Luna was sitting in front of everyone right from day one. You knew the architecture of this protocol. You knew where the money was coming from and you could tell what would cause it to crash. And many of the people we talked to, like obviously as a startup, we talk to VCs all the time. And, you know, some of them got burned. Those are the ones that we're not talking to because they're like, they have no ability to do any kind of investments. But the ones that we've talked to, they're the ones that survived. And they're the ones that could see it happening. Like they put money in there, like, hmm, this is a little bit, a little bit sketch. And they knew the signals as to when this thing could collapse. Hmm. So they were taking a calculated bet. Hmm. Right? And, and they could tell that this thing was unstable, but it had some returns that you could you could gain until then. And they could see the signs. And when those signs of instability came about, they pulled money out. <clears throat> and so it's, it's 100% transparent. That's kind of the beauty of 
the, the cryptocurrency space, but you have to know what you're looking for, or you have to follow the right people that know what to look for. But it's at least fully transparent. BlockFi and Celsius, this is exactly why you hold your own keys. I can't say it enough. I've been saying it every year. I've been saying it every cycle. Every cycle, there's always a reason why people get burnt. I mean, there's always an, uh, an example of, of self-custody being valuable. And that example is usually a custodian mismanaging money, losing money, getting hacked. It's, it's happened day in, day out, every single year. <clears throat> um, Augur being one of the first um, ICOs on Ethereum from back in like 2016. Um, I've used it a couple of times. I remember the one marketplace that I said, oh, I'm going to put money into that <clears throat> was, uh, was a bet. You know, if you, if, for those that haven't heard of Augur, it's a, a decentralized prediction market. Right? You can put in um, an event, a future event. And people can buy shares in the outcome. Will it be X or will it be Y? Will it be A or will it be B? And someone put on a market that said, uh, will there be an exchange hacked for more than $50 million by the end of the year? And they're like, oh, absolutely. Yes, I'll put money on that for sure. And yes, I was right. <laughs> you know, like it was, it's like a surefire bet. I'm surprised, I don't think I won any money because I think everyone was betting the same thing, right? <laughs> if everyone's buying the same shares, there's no money to be made. And I, yeah, I think I basically broke even. Um, and so... Uh, that is just so true. I mean, crypto has was built so that people can hold their own funds. And it, it's almost a double, it's not even a double-edged sword. It's like, it's a single-edged sword that has an extra sharp side because crypto was built so that you could hold your own funds. And it was built in such a way that if you don't, it's extra dangerous. Yeah. It's more dangerous than a money, than a bank holding your fiat money. Because fiat money being printed by the government can be insured by the government and the banks can't really be hacked to digitally transfer money to anything other than another bank. Like what do you do when you hack a bank? You wire money to another account, which has a name, social security number on it. And so you didn't really hack the bank. Right. The only way to hack a bank is with a gun and you know, one of these surgical masks, you know, <laughs> that's hacking a bank. Um, crypto exchange that's holding money or a custodial wallet as well. Uh, you send that money out, it, it's gone. And that is the most dangerous digital asset we've ever had from a custodial point of view. So it is a, not a double-edged sword, it's a single-edged sword. That single edge is custodian holdings, but it's extra, extra sharp. Um, <clears throat> so what do I think about it? Uh, if these returns in DeFi seem too good to be true, make sure you follow or understand how the money flows. Where's the money coming from? And what could cause that to abruptly stop or go in reverse against you? Um, and then second to that, on the flip side, Celsius and BlockFi, hold your own damn money, right? Those are also the too good to be true, but you don't even know what's going on underneath it. You can't analyze it. It's fully opaque. That's like the worst case. You just never know when things are going to go wrong. You won't see any of the signs. Um, too, ma too much risk. If people were getting, what, 8% return on their Bitcoin, and that sounded like amazing numbers. Who here is in Bitcoin for 8%? Like, you know, we're not in Bitcoin for 8%. There's a, a common meme. I don't wake up for less than 10x. Well, <laughs> so what the hell is 8%? Um, yeah, it, it's not a service I would ever use. And so I would use DeFi and only if I felt like I was going to get returns of more like 300% a year. Um, and there, I at least have full transparency. I'm going to do crazy due diligence and know my risk and only put funds that I feel like I'm okay you know, losing a, a larger portion of. <clears throat> and so that's kind of my overall take, right? DeFi, you just got to study it. <clears throat> mm -hmm. You got to study it, have someone else study it for you. Custodians, just don't do it. <laughs> just don't do it, period. Can you tell us a little bit about the future <clears throat> of Edge? 
Where's it going? Yeah. You know, it's uh, currently you have over 130 assets available uh, within the platform uh, to <clears throat> store and manage your crypto. Where's it going in the future? What's on the horizon? Got it. So in a four letter word, DeFi. Um, I know that DeFi had its summer, you know, like DeFi summer yeah. 2020. People got all excited about that. Good summer. Um, but, and then it kind of like just suddenly fizzled and it was all about NFTs um, out of nowhere. But I think DeFi is here to stay. What I love about DeFi is it takes the layer of money that Bitcoin kind of built. You know, we got a decentralized money with peer-to-peer transactions, no third party. Um, but when I was in Bitcoin back in 2013, I saw a ton of startups that basically built financial services on top of Bitcoin. But because Bitcoin had limited programmability, it was all centralized, centralized loans, centralized interest bearing this, blah, blah, blah. I was all like fully centralized. So I'm like, it's almost like we only replaced the very bottom layer of the financial stack. But everything above it was just like basic banking services. And that always kind of disheartened me. I was like, See, this doesn't feel right about this. <clears throat> and with the advent of DeFi, I finally saw more layers of the financial stack getting ripped away from the banks in the CeFi world. <clears throat> so that's what excites me. I use it personally. And I love using the tools that are fully available in CFI. And I can just say, you know, give the finger to CFI and go, no, I'm going to put in a DeFi protocol and get better, better deals, full control of my money, full transparency of what's happening. <clears throat> but big, but it sucks to use DeFi. <laughs> like it really blows chunks. The user experience is absolutely terrible. Let's take the Celsius compared to Aave, hmm. right? From a user experience, not from the, you know, hold your money and mm-hmm. transparency point of view, user experience, Celsius create an account with just my email and password. Simple as that. Um, put in some Bitcoin. And then I say, I want to take out a loan. All right. Uh, here's some Bitcoin. I want to take out a loan of you know half that value and link my bank account in Celsius. Boom. I got dollars in the bank account. Done. <clears throat> Straightforward. I think the same thing with BlockFi. I haven't used BlockFi, but kind of the same, same process. <clears throat> say you want to do that with Aave. What does that feel like? All right. So um, you got Bitcoin in some wallet. Right, but you can't deposit a Bitcoin in Aave. So let's go and swap it for wrap Bitcoin. All right, that might take a few minutes to a few hours. <clears throat> so you do the swap, you wait, 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 wait. And then finally it shows up in an Ethereum compatible wallet, which may be the same or different than the one you were using to hold your Bitcoin. Case of Edge, it could be the same one. <clears throat> now you've got to leave that wallet app and go to a website, right? Aave.com, app.ave.com. You have giant bells and whistles everywhere, all these switches and different assets. And like, what do I even click to take out this loan? <clears throat> so you figure all that nonsense out. You're like, okay, I'm going to deposit some wrapped Bitcoin. So now you have to sign a transaction. You got to like a wallet connect, you know, your app to this website. That's like one step you got to do wallet connect, which is glitchy as F, right? It's just terribly glitchy. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <clears throat> and then you want to send your, your wrapped Bitcoin into uh, Aave for collateral, you have to do an approval transaction for the token. All right. And for most people, like, what the hell does that even mean to approve the transaction? All right. Well, do it anyway. Approve the transaction. You got to wait for confirmation, which if you're lucky, it's 30 seconds. If you're not, half an hour, you know, Ethereum fees spike up. That finishes. Now you have to actually send the, uh, the token in for collateral. All right. Okay. Wallet Connect, you know, confirm, slide, blah, blah, blah. Sign this transaction if you know, even though you have no clue what the hell it's doing. All right, sign. And then you wait, and you wait, and you wait. Okay, your collateral is deposited. Now you got to go pick all the bells and whistles to figure out your loan itself. Figure out which stable coin you want to borrow amidst the like six stable coins. <clears throat> Hopefully you pick one that you can actually sell to your bank. 
you might pick something that you know nobody has support to sell to your bank, but hopefully you pick like DAI or USDC. <clears throat> you do that transaction, you wait, you wait, and finally it shows up inside of your Ethereum wallet, which if that wallet allows you to sell to your bank, great. If it doesn't, then it's like transfer it to an exchange, <clears throat> you know, have your bank connected and sell it into your bank. And now you've finally taken out that loan that Celsius did in like a few different steps, you know, all within the same app. <clears throat> That's the DeFi experience. Powerful, groundbreaking, globally accessible, you know, much more private, but really, really blows chunks from the UX. Our mission at Edge, which you'll see pretty soon, is to give users that Celsius experience, but with true DeFi, right? People just simply have the Bitcoin and Edge and they choose to take out a loan. Here's your LTV ratio you're going to get. <clears throat> Here's the interest rate you're going to get. Um, specify where you want it to go. Maybe you just want to hold it as a stable coin. Maybe you want to deposit in your bank account, right? You will have to link a bank account just like you would in Celsius. You can do that right inside of Edge through one of our partners. And then you just slide to confirm. Out goes the Bitcoin, it gets swapped, it gets, you know, those three transactions, you know, uh, approval, a deposit, and then the loan, and then the stable coin gets sold into your bank account. And you just had to do one slide to confirm. Things like that are the future of Edge. We want to take DeFi and hide all that DeFi nonsense behind it and make it feel like the Celsius and the BlockFi's of the world. Um, and then now we're competing on level playing field. If you really want that centralized service, cause you want, you know, that company you can call and ask, Hey, what's my balance and blah, blah, blah. Then sure. You have that as an option, but for everyone else that does want to control their own money, but doesn't want to deal with that terrible UX, they'll finally have edge. That's the future of what we're building. Um, and we're always looking for those, those cool DeFi protocols that are lacking that good user experience, but have high demand. Like they really have built a protocol people want. <clears throat> And that's the kind of thing we're going to put great effort into integrating. It is not easy. I got to admit, like we're in the midst of uh, integration of a DeFi protocol and you know, streamlining that UX and like, wow, are we tackling a hard problem um, with a lot of challenging corner cases? But once you deliver it, it's going to be like, whoa, you've just kind of, you've just created magic. Like, how did you do this? Um, so really excited to get that out the door. Expect that's the kind of thing you're going to see out of Edge going forward. Of course, decentralized exchange is a big piece. We've only got a little bit of support right now for DEXs, but that's going to grow cross-chain as well. Think um, Chainflip and ThorChain. So people can go from uh, one asset to another and not have to rely on a centralized exchange like some of our exchange partners right now. <clears throat> um, that is what I would, I would say is the big future. Um, we haven't widely shared uh, details about this, but we're um evaluating building our own DeFi protocol which does not exist like one that will offer a service that we want to have in the app but we just don't see anyone building it so that we haven't announced haven't shared what exactly it is what it'll do um, but that's that one's an exciting piece of, uh, of our roadmap as well <clears throat> so yeah big four-letter word DeFi. you know it's pretty generic but it's not just DeFi. it's finally bringing it into that buttery smooth experience that you would expect in the more centralized services. Because to us, that's our competition. A lot of people say, well, who are your competitors? Is it like Trust and Exodus? And we're like, mm, yes, but no, because we're shooting a little bit further. We're shooting for those centralized services. And the thing that we didn't cover about Edge, that is a big differentiating factor. I mentioned it, that key management part from back in the old days when I was teaching people how to use Armory. Edge's key management is vastly different in the sense that people don't ever have to write down the 12 words. They just create an account and log in and everything is encrypted and backed up. Feels like CFI, but gives you true DeFi. Cool. It's good to hear you're working <clears throat> on that because that I think is the biggest thing. You know, like Alf and I, 
we feel like in some ways we've been in the space for a few years, but we still feel compared to a lot of people that, that we're very much learners in the space and, and just trying to wrap our heads around things. But then you have a conversation with someone who's not really familiar. Maybe they don't own any crypto or anything mm-hmm. like that. And you just start explaining the process of some of these things like you just did with using Aave. I'm like, wow, I've never actually articulated all of the steps, but you're right. There's a lot of steps there. There's a lot of steps. I've done yeah. those steps like a dozen, couple dozen times. And so I know them by the back of my hand. Exactly. Yeah, and sucks. and even things like like seed recovery phrase, what you're just talking about. I was talking to my brother the other day. Um, he's about to set up his first Ethereum wallet and just walking him through. He's like, so wait a second. Um, I've got to write this down. Um, I can't let anyone see it. But if I ever lose it, that could be a big problem. If anyone ever finds it, it could be a big problem. I'm like, yes, like it, it's a very scary experience. So I just wanted to comment and say it, it's good to have you working on these problems because I think that is the single biggest friction point of of mass adoption. Mm-hmm. You should definitely set up, was it your brother you said? Yeah. Your brother? Set him yeah. up on edge. Let him, yeah. Ask him what he thinks he thinks of it because uh, yeah, there's no seed phrase for him to write down. No. He can write down his password. And if someone sees it, he's still protected. That's kind of the beauty of it. So that's, that's something fundamentally different is that we're much more forgiving while still giving you that autonomy. And you can still connect to these DeFi apps using wallet connect, which as much as I hate the protocol, it's kind of needed still. So we support it, but you know, we'll improve on that. One thing I want to ask you about Paul is so edge supports, I'll mentioned this earlier, 130 different crypto assets, but your Twitter and Instagram profiles only mention one and that is Bitcoin. Do you consider yourself a maximalist? Um, absolutely not. In no way, shape, or form. Um, I won't deny that Bitcoin is the granddaddy. It's the first. It's what launched everything else. It's what most things are based on. And heck, when you know, when I was part of the, when I'm still am, like we host Bitcoin meetups here, and, and the meetup was called the San Diego Bitcoin Meetup. We covered many different assets. It, for me, Bitcoin and saying Bitcoin is uh, is a catch-all for a majority, not all, but a majority of cryptocurrency. To me, it's open blockchains. <clears throat> I'm definitely against closed private, you know, enterprise blockchains, that nonsense where blockchain's a database. Oh, come on, really? And so, um, but for sure, I'm, I'm nowhere close to Bitcoin maximalists. The maximalists hate me. I've gotten flamed by maximalists left and right. No, no question about it. Even though some of our, some, some of my friends like, like tone vase and what, and whatnot, but I'm, I've seen, over the years, many of them slowly, slowly realized the value. And I think DeFi really brought the value to a lot of Bitcoin maximalists. It, it did for a few people. And we have a resident maximalist here at Edge. And um, when we pitched... Do, do they like that title? The resident, <laughs> resident maximalist? maximalist. It, you know, it's lighthearted here. So yeah, we, yeah. I can call him that in front of someone else. And he just we just giggle about it. Yeah. You know, but he's been in Bitcoin forever. Like, you know, he's he built his own exchange in 2012. Wow. Um, you know, so... Um, uh, when uh, we presented this DeFi protocol that we want to build, he was the first person to come up. And goes, I want in on that. I want to be a part of that. You know, that is compelling. You know, um, and so I think it's it, it opens eyes because for a lot of Bitcoin maximalists, they realized it is really hard to provide these financial services on top of Bitcoin without compromising on that decentralized nature or that self custody nature. You give up a lot of the things that you say are the reason why Bitcoin should exist. Because you end up being like, okay, well now I've got to use BlockFi to take out a loan. <clears throat> you know, or I got to use Celsius to earn yield. There isn't really good ways to keep control of my funds, but be able to do those grander financial services. <clears throat> and when you realize that these other chains enable you to do that, and some of them can also be very Bitcoin centric. So I'm a big fan of Rootstock. Have you guys uh, learned about that project yet? 
um, had a lot of news back in the 2016 era, 2017 era. They're a side chain of Bitcoin with full EVM compatibility. Slight, slight difference, but for the most part, it looks like Ethereum. <clears throat> um, and it has you know, a, a side chain bridge. Let's say you take Bitcoin and mint smart Bitcoin, um, uh, rootstock BTC, SBTC or RBTC, depends how you want to call it. Um, but that's a fully pegged token to Bitcoin and then use it in smart contracts and you can reverse peg and go back. Um, that's built by the IOV Labs team. I they actually are, one of their big backers is Digital Currency Group, which hosts Consensus. Um, and they, uh, IOV Labs had me on a panel over at Consensus because we talked about the same initiative, which is everyday DeFi bringing DeFi to the masses. So for the Bitcoin maximalist, um, many of them also don't like rootstocks because it's this smart contract Ethereum compatible chain and people can launch tokens on it. And as soon as it's a token, it's a shit coin to the maximalists. But they, they lose sight of the fact that, well, now you can take your Bitcoin and do something with it. Mm -hmm. right? You can earn yield on it. You can leverage it if you wanted to. You can borrow against it and never have to touch Ethereum. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm a fan of that project as well. I, Hey, recommend if you can get one of them on the podcast, definitely uh, talk um, talk to one of their their team. Um, but no, by and large, like the last thing I would call myself is a, a Bitcoin maximalist. Um, if anything, I, the closest thing to a maximalist I am is a self custody maximalist. Like I'd say, yeah. I definitely hold your funds to the the strongest degree that you can. Um, but uh, you know, I, I invite a lot of the innovation that the other chains have brought. If it wasn't for them, I think this this space, this industry, wouldn't be half the size that it is today because it wouldn't draw nearly the same level of interest from a broader swath of the population um, uh, than what Bitcoin could. But I still am grounded, uh, fully respect, love what Bitcoin is and what it, it brought to our world. Um, and I forever will hold some Bitcoin, you know, no question about it. <clears throat> and so uh, that's kind of where I stand. But yeah, no, no question, not, not a maximalist. It's one of those, like if I put the other coins that I like, it just wouldn't fit in the Twitter profile, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I do want to show that I, you know, I'm not like against Bitcoin, but I'm definitely not, not only that. <clears throat> totally fair. Um, before we get to the end here, I do have one last question, but then we'll move into our three question segment. We, we ask all our guests, but this question goes back to earlier in our conversation. We mentioned, you're great at identifying or maybe just, you know, jumping on trends before they're a trend, you know, getting in early. So as someone who's maybe uh, got a knack for that, what do you see as far as the trends for the crypto industry as a whole over the next year or so? Man, um, uh, I won't, cl I, I feel like I haven't, my ability to identify trends, <laughs> um, has definitely hit a bit of a halt since crypto because I've gotten so focused on that. If anything, maybe the better answer to that question would be what are the trends outside of crypto? Like I said, you know, you know, keto, health industry, the uh, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin space. What's that next thing that is bucking the narrative? Mm. Um, that's what I would generally look for is like, hey, what does everyone take for granted as truth? And then what is the technology or the trend that is bucking that? Um, I don't know that I've seen that again in, in the crypto space. Like, oh, this is just true narrative. And then this is fully bucking the trend. I know a lot of people are excited about NFTs. Um, and I think it has a use case, but I don't know if it has that same power of, oh gosh, the narrative has always been this. 
And we're now proving it's fully inverted to that. Um, right. I, I don't know if it fits that same category. So um, I'm, I could say what I'd hope it is. You know, what I hope it is, is finally after the many years and the many examples uh, and this is going back to my self-custody maximalism, <clears throat> hopefully after the many years, we start seeing the self-custody solutions actually overtake the custodial ones. <clears throat> I think that is a trend that I both hope for and I think our industry needs. There was slight examples of this in 2020 <clears throat> where I think the, the average daily volume on Uniswap exceeded Coinbase, hmm. but it didn't last long. But it was a hallmark moment to say, oh my God, a decentralized exchange actually exceeded the largest company in crypto, right? Um, and what did it take to build a decentralized exchange in resources? It took less than 40, it, it, at, the, at the time they had less than 40 people and like 10 or $15 million in funding. What did it take to build Coinbase? Hundreds and hundreds of million dollars of funding and uh, thousands of people, like it had thousands of employees at the time you know, it had a certain amount of exchange volume compared to Uniswap, which just barely eclipsed it. <clears throat> I think that shows the power and efficiency of the of the DEX space and of the DeFi space, where you can accomplish a lot with far less because you don't spend so much money on lawyers and banking relationships and regulatory compliance and all this stuff. You just be efficient, just build. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to hope that is the trend. We're going to finally start to see uh, DeFi and DEXs eclipse centralized alternatives. Things like Aave or the Aave you know, borrowing integration inside of Edge would eclipse what you'd see out of the BlockFi's and the Celsius's of the world. Um, uh, a cross-chain decentralized exchange like Fortchain possibly eclipse um, one of the bigger um, kind of what I'd call crypto-to-crypto -crypto exchanges like a uh, like a Binance. Like that would be amazing. Um, I don't know if that'll happen in the next year possibly in the next five years. I mean, that's kind of my hope in the next bull run. <clears throat> that bull run will show the power of these um, more DeFi-like protocols, DEX protocols, um, more, I hate the word decentralized, but more decentralized-ish protocols that replace their centralized equivalents. That's my hope of the next bull run. <clears throat> that would make me excited, very, very excited and, and keep up the, the hope that we're still on the right mission and that crypto is actually going to achieve its goal as opposed to just be this thing that Wall Street traders bounce up and down. <clears throat> Paul, this has been a great conversation. We've enjoyed learning more about your story, diving into all things Edge. Alf mentioned a few moments ago that we do have a three-question segment that we ask right, every right. single guest <clears throat> on the show. It's a segment oh, we boy. call, You Had Me at Crypto. Alf's going to ask you those questions. Sure. All right, Paul, you ready? <laughs> Go for it. Okay, the first question here is, who is your favorite person to follow in the crypto space? It was Andreas Antonopoulos, and I haven't had a favorite since, hmm. um, admittedly. He's kind of gone a bit quieter, not in the digital space, but in the physical space um, since COVID. And so I feel like I haven't gotten a chance to connect and understand his viewpoints nearly the same degree that I used to, but he was my absolute favorite person to follow. I learned a lot from him. I also learned how to present from him, like his ability to explain complex topics was unparalleled. Um, also generally had a great, great personality. I also had just a good working relationship with him, had a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with him. <clears throat> and he was on that one podcast, you know, back nice. in 2013, yeah. he was one of the four people or three people on the podcast when there was only one podcast ever. So I could never forget Andreas and I give him hats off for being the anchor 
of of my education in Bitcoin as early as I got into it. <clears throat> nice. We still got to get Andreas on the show. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully soon. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> uh, all right. Second question. What will the price of Bitcoin be 10 years from now? And don't worry about any financial advice. It's 10 years out. Uh, mm. It's just for fun. It's 10 years out. So um, this recent bull cycle has thrown major curveballs into like predictions on the on each Absolutely. cycle. No question about it. <clears throat> and so I'm hoping the next bull cycle gets us back on track because we did about what three three and a half x from previous all time high. I like to measure it bull cycle to bull cycle as previous all time high to next all time high. And three and a half x is relatively small compared to prior years. We had almost a twenty x before that, you know, a fifty x before that, and a three and a half x is almost like you remember that I don't wake up for less than ten x. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I do think that there's still a chance that we get back to normal and actually hit more along the lines of exponential growth. And if it's, if it is that, then we're looking at 10 X on 10 X in, in 10 years. Plus we're in a bear market. So we're kind of at a low. So, you know, a 10 X from that is only 200 K, which many people predicted we would hit in this last um, bull market cycle. Now things do slow down with each cycle. So say we're able to 10 X from, um, from right now, that would only be three X from the previous all time high, mm. you know, 70K to 200K is only about three X. It's less than three X, <clears throat> um, 200K, uh, into so 10 years, we'll probably hit another one, one more bull bull cycle. So if it's another three X, then 200 hits 600. And I think it, we, we would be lucky to hit a million, mm. but, but, but very possible. That was um, the most well-reasoned and thought-out yeah, answer well, to that question. That we <laughs> normally just get a million with <laughs> yeah, no yeah. explanation, but I like that. I like where yeah. your mind's at. It's, I got to have something other than just kind of a shoot from the hip, you know, yeah, on, on yeah. the price. But I think a million is, is a stretch given just kind of normal, normal circumstances. Now, I think there's a potential black swan event that could get us to a million and even higher more easily, <laughs> which is the fact that the thing I've been looking at is what percentage of the market cap is crypto rel or Bitcoin, because the problem with looking at the market cap of crypto is it literally includes dollars now, mm -hmm. you know, USDC, right. Tether and whatnot now are a, a large portion of the crypto market cap. So now it's like, ugh, I want to see the market cap of kind of from scratch issued crypto, not backed by fiat that I, I don't know. So you'd have to kind of take the market cap of just Bitcoin alone. Um, and what percentage of the market cap of M1 fiat currency has that been historically? It's been tiny. So 60 trillion has kind of been the estimate of, you know, M1 fiat currency, and we've barely broken 1 trillion ever, All right? So a very tiny percentage. And I've asked myself at what point, at what market cap will Bitcoin's market cap in fiat start to affect the value of fiat itself? Will it start to affect the buying power of fiat to a more significant degree where people will want to escape it? <clears throat> All right. So um, right now, of course, we're hitting this downward trend of in, in crypto. So people are wanting to escape crypto itself. But at, at some point, if, if we actually get crypto rising, coinciding with the value of the dollar decreasing, not necessarily from inflation, but potentially Bitcoin extracting value from it, because it's now a larger percentage, say it's in the, you know, if we're like at about the trillion, I think we peaked at a trillion of market cap in Bitcoin. So you, three uh, x from that, that's you know three four trillion. You three x from that, that's like twelve trillion out of sixty trillion 
market cap, is that enough to start to extract notable value out of the dollar? Now you might just suddenly have a tidal wave of flow. Um, and then the million becomes just a drop in the bucket, uh, the million dollar price. So um, that one's a little bit harder to predict, but I think that's that's that one turning point. It's a little harder to predict when it happens. I think it'll happen pretty quickly and it will create the massive outflow of the dollar into Bitcoin and other cryptos. Yeah, it's interesting when you put it that way to like uh, tie the big move to like a global event like that where basically the world go does a bank run but rather than bank run for cash they bank run for crypto you know that could definitely have that sort of mass effect where everybody does it and and maybe at that point crypto is so usable with all the DeFi technology maybe being fully fleshed out and it's great user experience that there's no reason not to go use crypto yeah. instead right yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And I'll say this, like when you hit a million dollars or $10 million, you won't want to measure Bitcoin against the dollar at that yeah, point. Right. It won't be too meaningful to measure it against the dollar. Um, you want to measure it against like the amount of eggs you can buy or price of a home. Um, and so that, that will be an interesting point. We haven't hit that yet clearly, but I know that that point's coming. It'll be interesting to see if I see that in my lifetime, I, but I think it is very feasible. All right. Third and last question here. What is the most underrated coin or project in all of crypto? Other than Edge. Oh, we don't have a coin. <laughs> no, or a project. Or project. Uh, we're the most underrated project. Sure. Coin. We don't have a coin. And so, um, gosh, it's hard for me to do this without pumping bags. You know, because if, if I think it's underrated, obviously I have it, right? Yeah, this is why we added in project to the yeah, question. Yeah. You don't and, have to pump yeah. a coin. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, then I just shield my own project. Great. It's like, you can't win, right? <laughs> it can also be um, sector. So you've talked about DeFi a little bit. Like that, that is an acceptable answer. We don't want to like pigeonhole people to have to. <laughs> also, yeah, to like you know what? Everybody <laughs> hates pumping pump bags, but you're going to you're gonna hype up a project that's good. And if it's good, why wouldn't you buy good. some of it? I mean, you know, it's a catch-22. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll pump. I don't even have a huge bag in this anyway, so... Um, I just have some because I was compensated some of this, but I'm a big fan of the FIO protocol <coughs> of the FIO protocol, and it is very underrated. Many people haven't heard of it. Um, it's kind of an alternative to the ENS system, mm -hmm. Ethereum naming service, which is wildly popular. Yet I'm not a big fan of because it is the best way to dox yourself. Mm -hmm. Like um, Ethereum in its, of itself, you associate one address. You, you got this Ethereum address associated to it, this ENS address, and now everyone knows every NFT you own, every DeFi transaction you've ever done, how much money you have in your account, and blah blah blah, and, and up the wazoo. <clears throat> um, and it also costs a lot of money to register, um, and it has no no roadmap to any level of privacy. For it does support multiple chains, you can associate a Bitcoin address to it, but you know then that that Bitcoin address is a forever associated to that handle. Um, and there's no roadmap to privacy. <clears throat> um, enter FIO under the handle, which is a different chain of its own. Um, and it's specifically designed for this ENS-like functionality and then some. <clears throat> um, what I do like about it, because it does have functionality that provides privacy and a roadmap to even better privacy. So it has the doxing capability of ENS where you can simply just link your wallet addresses to this you know, friendly name. Um, and they're not just domains, they're domains plus a, a name. So um, a FIO crypto handle is like Paul at edge. Hmm. You know, it's not like Paul.eth, it's Paul at edge. It kind of feels like what you'd normally get with like a uh, an email address. 
you know, and you can register one for free inside edge right now. You know, you see, um, you can get weighed at edge if it's still available and, you know, um, or you can register your own domain if you not, if you want similar to, uh, to ENS, but where privacy starts to kick in is that instead of just linking my wallet addresses to my FIO handle, I can send a payment request to a handle. <clears throat> so I can send to wait at edge. I go, Hey, can you pay me that five bucks for the coffee that I got you the other day in this currency? Right. So it's going to be 0.0 whatever amount of Bitcoin. <clears throat> and that payment request is fully encrypted. Nobody sees it. Only I can see it and only you can see it. <clears throat> and then when you receive it, you get the address that I sent um, requesting and only you see that address. Nobody else sees it. And then at the slide of a, or tap of a button or slide to confirm, you can automatically just pay that right to me. And you can even attach a memo on the payment back to me. Hmm. You could say, Hey, thanks. Let's go grab dinner tomorrow. Something like that. Or thanks for the coffee. And when I receive the money, I can see that it came from Wade. It didn't just come from some willy nilly address. I can see that it came from you, but nothing on the blockchain exposes that information. That's what I really love about it is that it has this metadata layer. Unlike ENS, I can send a payment attach this encrypted metadata that shows up on your end. And part of that is who I am. So you can see who it is. And that encrypted data is fully invisible to anyone, but the two of us. <clears throat> um, so for payment requests, you get a high level of privacy <clears throat> for outright payments. You kind of don't, right. It's kind of like ENS. I'm just, I pay the fixed address you have, you know, weighted edge, but at least the metadata, that little encrypted message, I can send that a little encrypted message <clears throat> and that's fully encrypted. No one sees that. Um, they are also on the roadmap adding the ability to link between two people. <clears throat> so I could um, kind of link, not really link, but I can friend your account. <clears throat> so once I've friended Weighted Edge and then, you know, Paul at Edge friends Weighted Edge, now I can push a payment to you without doing a payment request. You can push a payment to me and the address that we share with each other is completely invisible to anyone on the blockchain. <clears throat> um, so that in and of itself provides an elevated level of privacy that you don't just dox yourself whenever I want to pay you. Um, that's what I like about the protocol and it does have its own coin. And that coin is what you use to register domains, register addresses, and to pay for this metadata, this tiny bit of metadata that's encrypted in, you know, um, when it goes from one person to another. So that user experience is much more Venmo like than, <clears throat> than you would get with just uh, Ethereum domain names. Right, that metadata layer is really key to that user experience. And we use it widely in our company because several people in our company, we do a lot of Bitcoin in our company and crypto. If, if people don't know, nobody in Edge Airbits has ever been paid in anything other than crypto. Mm -hmm. We've only gotten paid in Bitcoin. <clears throat> and we also use it for operations. You know, payroll uses it. We pay bills with it. We receive revenue in it. <clears throat> and several people in the company have wallets that need to get tracked financially, you know, like in QuickBooks. And whenever we transfer money between ourselves, we use FIO. Because when I receive money from someone in the company, I automatically knew who it came from. It's auto tagged. It says, oh, that came from so-and-so. And she can, that person, she or he could uh, attach a little message saying what it was for. I don't have to figure out like, freak, where did that money come from? Hey, who owns, who owns address, blah, 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 and sent me money, you know, on this date and time of this amount. It's just, it automatically gets tagged. So we honestly use it for its functionality. Um, so yes, I'm pumping my bags. But I honestly do like this protocol. I think it solves a usability challenge in crypto. So I invite people to check it out and actually not even buy the coin. 
Don't even check it out to buy the coin. Buy enough to register a handle, register a domain if you want, and then actually go and try to use the protocol. It'll, it'll cost you less than five bucks to probably cost you like yeah, a couple dollars to register your own handle. And I think the foundation is offering it for free for some time. Try registering your own handle in Edge. I think it's free, your first handle. And then just try using it. That's what I invite people to do. Forget the coin. The coin, the value will go up as more people use it. <clears throat> right? But uh, just use the protocol. Cool. That's so interesting. That sounds I'm, awesome. Yeah, I'm surprised I haven't heard of that before. But uh, just like with that, you, you have a gift, Paul, for explaining things very well, very easy to understand. Thank you so much for joining Alf and I on this episode of Show Me the Crypto. No problem. Thanks so much, guys, for having me and uh, look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to Show Me the Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review this podcast.